Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. In this episode, I'll be beginning an examination of the stories Dick published in 1957. And there's only two of them. I think in my last episode, I mentioned three, but I was actually wrong. It's I made the list, chronological order of the stories, and these three stories are in a row. But actually, two are published in 1957, one in 1958, and then... Um, Dick wrote or published Time Out of Joint in 1959. So there's only two stories from, from 1957. They are The Unreconstructed M and Misadjustment. And in this episode, I'll be looking at The Unreconstructed M. Now, this is a very lengthy story. It actually almost qualifies as a novella. Um, it, at least thematically, it's, it's very rich. It's, it's a very, there's a lot going on in this story. It's a murder investigation. It's about the frontier. It's about the whole criminal justice system in a way. You have a lot of Cold War themes, spy versus spy kind of stuff going on here. So it's, it's kind of a rich story. It's also a story that Dick borrowed from, from some, for some of his other stories, um, for his novels. Um, but he never borrows the whole thing. So the, it is worth reading this story um, for a look at Dick's development on a handful of themes that have showed up a lot in his in his career, and I think it pairs nicely with the Minority Report. In fact, I think this this story easily could have been a novel, and it's it's actually kind of surprised me that Dick didn't fully develop this this into a novel because there's certainly enough material in here for for him to have done that. Um, but the Unreconstructed M was originally published in Science Fiction Stories in January of 1957. It's currently in the fourth volume of the collected stories, the one titled Minority Report and Other Classic Stories by Philip Dick. Um, and as I talked about before, I think there's different ways that these five volumes of the collective stories have been titled and, and there's been some stories that have moved around, but it's, you know, it's, it's, this is the most common place you'll find it is in the fourth volume, the one titled Minority Report. Not, oh no, it is The Minority Report, sorry. It's an easy mistake to make. The, the story is called The Minority Report and the, the movie was just Minority Report. So that, that's the distinction. Kind of like a Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones. Anyways, um, what goes on in the story? Well, the story's in three parts, like three chapters, I guess. Um, and on on your surface, it looks to be a frame job story. So as it begins, a small machine sneaks into an apartment and leaves behind a single follicle of human hair, then two small grains of tobacco, and then some other small pieces of evidence. It then destroys a video recorder. Later, a man enters the apartment and the machine shoots him in the head with an explosive pellet. The machine drops a few more items and then hides by turning into a portable TV set. And then some people come in and respond to the shot. They wonder where the murderer is gone. He came through the window, it seems, but how could he have escaped? So it's, it's kind of a whodunit. Now we see the murder and how it takes place, but... Um, it's essentially a, a sort of assassination attempt that we just witnessed. But it added to this is this, this evidence that's placed all over the apartment. So then we shift to a character, Edward Ackers, and he's talking with 
Harvey Garth. Garth is on the street near a sign that reads, Banish it! And he's distributing flyers, so he's like the street radical. Most people just discard it immediately, as you might expect, but he's handing it out and, you know, promoting whatever message it is. Ackers challenges Garth that they need a system to deal with criminals. Garth, however, thinks that you don't, well, you don't need a, like a criminal justice system in a traditional sense of confining and banishing people. All you need is education and psychotherapy. This will do a better job than banishment. And he says that this banishment causes certain deaths, problems in societies in the backward regions where these people are sent to, and on and on. And then he also says that once exiled, the criminals can make their way back, but it usually takes the most of their remaining life to, to return to Earth. Ackers counters that banishment is better than the old system of execution, which they used to do for pickpockets and other petty crimes. By the way, that was something that was commonly done in England in the 18th century. There's a wonderful book um, by a historian named Peter Limebaugh called The London Hanged, which rolls all that up and rolls out all that whole history of how violence of the state was used to prop up capitalism. And one of the main ways it did it was through punishment of property crimes. And part of this kind of this codification of the law of property was the criminalization of property crimes or the criminalization of petty theft. And actually to the point where it was like people would be banished to the frontier or executed. So I can't help but think that Dick is actually thinking about the actual justice system that was alive and well in Great Britain in the 18th century that helped populate America because when people would be hung, you know, often they could get off, but that if they got off, maybe they were pregnant or the judge lowered their sentence, they'd be sent to America. Their sentence would be reduced to transportation. So we have that same kind of system here, uh, plant, you know, sending people off to the frontier. Now, Garth, the guy pr promoting his propaganda on the street, he has the sign banish. Well, he, what he wants to banish is the banishment system. So he's using the same word of banish to do that. So it's just a kind of a political slogan, slogan tactic, political sloganing tactic. So anyways, after this talk, Acker starts to meditate on, on the murder, Jaime Rosenberg's murder. Hospital truck passes him and Acker gets in to inspect the body. So this all happened not long after the murder we just, just witnessed. So then we meet the detective, Leroy Beam. He's in charge of, well, he's actually in charge of collecting evidence um, in the Rosenberg apartment. Beam thinks the case is suspicious because no one could have escaped so quickly from the crime scene. Normally, though, it would take nine specifications to identify a culprit. So we've had in pre-crime, in the Minority Report, a method for identifying criminals using, using precognition, right? In the unreconstructed M is actually much better for our purposes because we there, there's no psychic, but we can't read the future. So pre-crime really is not possible outside of like maybe we can uh, we can catch some people who are likely to commit crimes, right? Like, and I think I talked about it when I looked at Minority Report. And especially we hear this every time there's a mass shooting, like, oh, we just missed the signs, right? Well, if we're actually to follow through on every sign, how many people would get arrested or questioned or, or bothered when they weren't really a threat. I mean, that's a issue we have to deal with. But think about it. this is actually a much better story for our purposes because 
in the unreconstructed M, we have essentially big data solving crimes. So what you need are nine clues, essentially nine distinct specifications. And there's a list of what they are. Blood type, smoker or non-smoker, shoe size, sex, you know, on, you know, there's a whole list of things. But if you get nine of them, then that will be enough data that you can you can eliminate everyone but the murderer, the real person who was there. So that's how the system works. You, you assume everyone in the world, in the universe, is a suspect in the crime, and then you eliminate people using these specifications. And apparently nine is the number that will always get you down to one person, one unique individual. So in the research lab, they have all this, this evidence collected, and Beam's technicians draws his attention to the portable TV pack, which is not a television, since its power supply is much higher than you would need for a TV. But they can't determine what role, if any, this device played in the murder. Now, we know it's the, the machine turned into this after, after the murder took place. Beam insists that it's too unique not to have a role in the murder. Its construction would have required access to uh, special resources and special technology. But then Paul Trillo comes, which is Rosenberg's boss, the, the murder man's boss. He discusses the murder with Beam. And Triol goes to the lab and then the TV pack runs up into his arms and Troll walks away with it. This astonishes the technician and Beam. So then chapter two, we, we return to Ackers. Um, so he's after talking with Garth. Now he's working on the murder. And he's, he's I guess he's like the real detective who's actually going to process all this data. Now Harvey Garth is still working on spreading his propaganda, asking for an end to the banishment system. Um, now, to pass the time, Ackers works on an indictment for Garth, which is, is this just, you know, just for, for fun, something to pass the time. He does this. But an attendant for the case, the Rosenberg case, tells Ackers that nine specifications narrow down the suspects in the Rosenberg murder to 40. But a bit later, a tenth specification came in, leaving just seven suspects. So Acker looks at the seven suspects. Only one seems likely to be the murderer. The rest were infirm or lived very far away. And the man's name is David Lantano. So I guess nine specifications don't get you down to just one or a unique person, but gets you down to a small set that you can use to then just investigate. And like if, you know, one will be the most likely based on whatever kind of deduction. So the, the detective's job is really reduced to that of just data collecting and processing data and then following through on the, on the leads. Beam is bothered that that television belonged to Peter Trial, and that seems to be, it's just, it's an odd circumstance. And he still assumes that the machine had something to do with the murder. Beam believes that Trial killed his own employee, but the machine was just too elaborate for a simple murder and a frame job. What was its real function? So Ackers, meanwhile, has to go and arrest David Lantano because he's who's been deemed the guilty party. He's an extremely wealthy and powerful person. Lantano knew Rosenberg and liked him. He actually asked for a chance to prove, he asked for his chance to prove his innocence. And Acker reminds him that he can challenge each of the 10 specifications in court. So there is a chance to, to question the, the, the specifications, the, evi the specific evidence. So again, we have a pretty good idea of how this, this justice system works now. Is It's all based on big data. It's based on extensive record keeping of everyone. It only works if you have a profile of every single person in existence, right? Even things of like who smokes or not. 
And then the way you prove your innocence is you prove one of those specifications was misapplied to you in some way. So Beam talks about the case with Garth, and Garth informs him that Lantano has been already picked up for the murder, and Beam immediately knows that Lantano is being framed. Garth, it turns out, was a spy for an independent researchers who used to collect information from the Interior Department. I suppose this is how to get all that information on, on every human being. His activism, this banish it, is merely for show. Beam knows that Tyrol, the man Rosenberg works for, the one that Ackers, or the one that Beam thinks probably did the murder because of the whole TV incident. He thinks that he would want Latano to take over his operation. But without the device, he couldn't really prove it. Worse, Tyrol could use the device to frame him for the murder. I mean, if you have a device like this that can actually plant the evidence and commit a murder, you could frame virtually anyone as long as you knew their specifications. Garth reveals that Tyrol's driver is Ellen Ackers, Edward Ackers' ex-wife. Beam thinks that he knows she is associated with Tyrol. He might be more willing to consider the possibility that Lantana was framed. So Beam goes over to Ellen Acker's apartments. She shoots him at the door. She shoots at the door, but misses his head because he was crouched down to pick the lock. After gaining access to the apartment, Beam learns from Ellen that Peter Tyrol is seriously injured in the bathroom. Ellen attacked him earlier. Ben confirms that he will live, and Ellen explains that she wants to use the device to blackmail her husband, but that Paul has other plans for it. Like I said, it's all a very complicated story with a complicated plot anyways and it's it's really a whodunit kind of frame job story but in the backdrop you have this whole narrative of 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 the frontier of banishment of of criminal justice so that's really what i want to focus on rather than everything that happened in the story but it's really about who's framing who and why that's the mystery we have now in chapter three ellen realizes that Lantano is going to be banished regardless of her actions. Beam agrees that this is probably what's going to happen. There's no way that Ackers will confess that there's a failure in the system. And, and we're very much reminded of Minority Report, the Minority Report here, because there you had the same thing that rather, you know, you can't, you can't undermine the system that has proven successful most of the time. One failure is not good enough to undermine the whole system. And so people of the institution who are, bound by it are going to defend that system, even if it sh even if failures are revealed. Ellen and Beam go to where the machine was programmed to try to figure out how to open the device, which this is what Ellen calls an M. That's where the title of the story comes from. Ellen explains that the device was programmed against killing anyone but Rosenberg, so it was a very specific type of murder and framing device. To anyone else, it looks just like a television set. But having figured out the truth behind the murder, Beam convinced Ackers to see Tyrol banished instead of, of Lantano. Tyrol is sent out to the distant colonies with the standard $1,000, and he'll probably never be able to get back. Next, we see Tyrol trying to get back to the center, which is the term for the solar system, um, by hijacking and trying to purchase tickets to various locations. He's frustrated to learn that his company has been replaced by Lantano's company, and he knows he'll never make it home in time to restore his business or restore his career. The story ends with Lantano enjoying his success, although he's not as rich as he pretends to be. 
And so we got a kind of nice little layer of delusion at the end or a layer of fakeness at the end. So he, he's kind of like Donald Trump in the sense that he, he pretends to be a little bit richer than he really is. So anyways, like I said, the, the plot's a little bit complicated and a bit of a chore to get through. But I think some of the themes behind the story are, are pretty interesting. And I think this really should have been a, a full novel. Um, so it's... Anyways, right away, let's, let's do the comparison with Minority, the Minority Report and this, this story. They're written around the same period of time. I think they're about a year apart, maybe less than a year apart. Now, we don't have pre-crime here in the Unreconstructed M, but we have something very similar in that we have a criminal justice system that's done away with the need for the detective. Instead, the detectives are all just technocrats. They're just specialists. They're just evidence collectors and computer specialists and big data people. A computer has taken over the job of solving crimes. All the investigators need to do is put enough data into the machine to eliminate all but one person from the list of suspects. Importantly, every time a crime is committed, we're all suspects. So rather than assuming innocence of everyone when a crime is committed, it assumes the guilt of everyone. Now, it's not quite that we have to require, we're required to prove our innocence, but in effect, that's what happens. Because if you are brought before the court, you have to prove that one of the specifications that identify you is wrong. And more troubling here is what it convicts people is the aggregate. Enough circumstantial evidence is enough to convict. Right? So it's not about having direct evidence, a witness or anything. You just need enough circumstantial evidence that someone is identified as being in the site. But like Minority Report, we have a police officer forced into a dilemma of either exposing a fault in the system that he relies on for his identity, his belief. He's another institutional man, very much like we see in Minority Report. Now, thanks to Beam's old-fashioned investigative ability, so he's like he, he goes at it more like the old-fashioned detective actually doing that, the work. Ackers is more the technocratic type who just relies on the system and relies on the data. Ackers learns that the system has failed and that David Lentano was framed. But in a twist, the ending seems to suggest that Lentano may have framed himself and his competitor, Paul Tyrol, at the same time. He framed himself for the murder and framed Tyrol for the frame job. This ensures his dominance over the industry and allows him to rise up in business. So again, like in the Minority Report, where we have a, a, a case of murder, but it's really institutional games. It's, it's about big politics. Here, it's, a, it's about two businesses competing, but it's the same kind of issue that the, the system gets hacked for the manipulation of a bigger game, a bigger game being played. In this case, it's, it's corporate shenanigans. In the end, what really matters here is, I guess, what we can take away from this, most importantly, is, is what it tells us about the criminal justice system. Um, now, we, like with Minority Report, we learned that no matter how perfect the system is, there are flaws. But as I talked about in Minority Report, Dick didn't seem to care that much about the flaws in the system there. First, it's presented as a very unique case. It can only happen to the head of pre-crime. In this story, it's suggested that there's more of a fundamental moral dilemma with the way this justice system works. Now, another element of the criminal justice system described in the story involves exiling people to the undeveloped or underdeveloped frontier worlds 
Once out there, people are completely free. They can do whatever they want. Now, very few do return because it's expensive. It takes a long time. It's they're probably not likely to get back. The outlying worlds are isolated. They're poor. Transportation networks are undeveloped. And as Tyrol learns at the end, getting back is not easy at all, even for someone of means and reputation. To the system's defense, it's preferable to confinement in prisons or executions. And that's what we're told by characters in the story, especially Akers, who gets in this thing with Garth. Yet enemies of this system are still out there. There's still people who question the justice system as it exists. And the example we have of this is, of course, Garth. Now, Garth may be a double agent and a spy and, you know, whatever he is. But he's still representing views that question the system. His real job is to spy on the police, though. The movement, Banish the Banishment System, argues that the best way to deal with crime is through education and therapy. Which might be Dick's point of view. I don't know. I, I think i have to think about that. The technology behind the unreconstructed M is a device that can commit murders and leave enough evidence to frame someone. In this sense, the robot worked as exactly as directed. It's, it's very much a Asimov robot in the sense that it did exactly what it was programmed to do, except that it kills people. I guess an Asimov robot shouldn't be able to kill someone. But this one worked exactly as directed, as programmed which is not something Dick always takes for granted. He, his robots often go and do their own thing. Now, Ellen, Ellen Ackers discusses the machine with Beam saying, quote, M stands for machine. So the title of the story is actually the unreconstructed machine. Continuing the quote, to roll means it cannot be educated or morally corrected, end quote. Now, this doesn't mean it can't be programmed, it can't be educated, but it can be programmed, right? So Dick has a point here, I guess, about moral accountability and the machine and the robot and, and suggesting that a programmed robot is somehow beyond moral accountability. If the idea here is that all machines are morally unaccountable, it's kind of stating the obvious, I suppose. If you have a programmer, it's the programmer who's guilty. But one interesting element to this, to the technology of this device is that it's capable of being something else to everyone but the intended target. Not only does it fake evidence, it fakes its own role. And at the end of the story, the machine goes free ramp, freelance, it seems, breaking its own programs. But this seems to have been for mechanical reasons. Quote, the breakdown was one of relays and roops, not of a living brain. Okay, so I guess that's all I really want to say about the unreconstructed M. It's just a really interesting idea about how a criminal justice system could work based on big data. Um, it also has a little bit about the frontier as a depository of criminals, but we really don't have too much that Dick does with it. I, I think it's, I think Dick, by this point in his career, has kind of said what he wanted to say about the frontier. I mean, he'll do a little bit with it with time out of joint, and then he'll come back to it later. But it's, you know, there's not really much more he could say in you know, in, in this story to really add to what he's trying to, his overall narrative of of the frontier. Here it's just a depository for, for I guess, human kipple, right? The, the kind of the useless leftovers of, of society, the criminals. But I think at the heart, it's a story about a system of, 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 fine, of, of criminal justice based on assuming everyone's guilty and then allowing big data in the computer to figure it out for you. And then, of course, on the other side, we have a computer or a machine that actually is capable of 
inflicting murder and, and doing a frame job. Now we're reaching a point in Dick's career where he really stopped writing short stories. So this was submitted to his agent. This story was submitted to his agent in June of 1955. And of course it took a couple of years before it was published. Um, and he would submit a couple more short stories in the 1950s, uh, Explorers, We, and War Games, both in 1958. But he really wouldn't be, and then a few stories would trickle in, and I'll talk about them as they were published in this chronological approach I'm doing. A few stories would trickle in, but pretty much everything he had written early in his career has been published by this point. He would pick up short story writing in earnest again in 1963. Um, and he would in just about a year, he would write up like a dozen more stories. So his period of great output of short story writing is done. And he would have one more like short burst of really creative short story writing, such as The Faith of Our Fathers, uh, The Black Box, and, and a few others. But those are all written in like a Blitzkrieg moment as well. So pretty much with that exception, he's going to shift to writing novels from this point forward in, in his career. So it's, it's kind of a, a turning point in that sense, this story. But anyways, that's, that's my thoughts on the unreconstructed M. Um, I think it's, it's worth looking at just as something to think about is, is how big data might influence criminal justice. But maybe beyond that, there's not too much to say. So anyways, thank you so much for listening. If you have any of your own comments about this story or about Philip K. Dick or about the criminal justice system or big data or anything like that, please leave it below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And um, thanks for listening. I'll be back next time with, with Misadjustment. My tired thoughts once on That leaving dies That leaving dies That leaving